and welcome to Hiding Behind the Music Stand. I'm your host, Patty Ryan, and with me is Sam Bennett, who is the principal second violinist of Sarasota Orchestra in Sarasota, Florida. She also is the founder and co-artistic director of Ensemble New SRQ, a contemporary music collective, and is the violinist in the Chroma Trio with season one guests Francesca McNeely and Mary Furlo. And we'll be talking about her enthusiasm for outdoor activities, from biking to living in a camper and traveling around the Pacific North and Southwest America. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to talk with you today. Yay! So we met at Tanglewood, I believe, right? Yes, that's correct. I think in 2011. Oh my gosh, so that's actually 10 years ago this summer. Or 2012. I can't remember. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. I think it was 2012. Yeah, I know. I feel like such a baby back then thinking about that. (laughs) I do too. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think we did three years together consecutively, right? And then you went on to become a from violinist. Uh, Did you skip a year? Yes, I think we did three years consecutively. And I did a fourth and fifth year as from players, which are the sort of alumni that specialize in contemporary music. And then I actually skipped a year. And then I did a third year as from with Francesca and Mary, actually. So I did skip a year. So I was there for six years, actually, in total, which is wild to think about now. But awesome. I mean, like, how can you resist going back to Tanglewood for any request? Oh, it's impossible request? to resist going back to Tanglewood. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the best place there is. Yeah. I mean, obviously very biased over here, but yes. <laughs> so what's your most insane performance story? All right. It's actually shocking now that I was able to get away with this. When mm-hmm. I think back on it, I was just like, what was I thinking? And somehow I didn't get fired. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Okay. <laughs> So before I won my position in Sarasota Orchestra, I actually played for a season in the Florida Orchestra, which is based in Tampa, St. Pete area. So it was a a bit of a commute. My husband played in Sarasota, so I was living there and driving the hour up to Tampa. And that first year, I was just playing in the second violin section, and I had the opportunity to do a couple of pre-concert introductions. So they usually have Mm -hmm. a musician do like a little bit of a talking segment before the concerts, just, you know, either introducing pieces or providing some color and and getting to know the players. So I had done one of these already and I I allowed myself to (laughs) make some jokes, I guess, which that was kind of the tradition there led by the principal percussionist, John Shaw, who is a hilarious, hilarious man. So I was emboldened by his rapport with the audience. So I was like, I can come up with some jokes and do some funny things. So that was successful. And then they asked me to do another one, which just so happened to correspond with April Fool's Day. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) So I, again, I'm not sure where I got the guts to do this. I I had a violin that was in several pieces that had been given to me by a friend who thought, well, is this worth repairing? Maybe you know something about it. I don't know anything about violins. And so I, it was just sitting in my closet. So I had this violin. It was in two pieces, basically. And I got this idea in my head that I would walk up to do the introduction carrying the broken violin Mm -hmm. and then somehow pretend to fall break the violin and it would be really shocking for everyone at the concert but then Uh I would say something like April Fool's it's all okay (laughs) 
I guess I thought it would be a hilarious thing. So (laughs) in my defense, I did talk to my section leader and said, I think I'm going to do this. Is this a good idea? I have some other jokes and things. And she was very encouraging. She said, yes, you should definitely do this. It would be hilarious. Okay. (laughs) So we get to the concert and I'm introducing the pieces and thanking people from being there and kind of being very obviously silly. You know, I said something about like, if you're sensitive to animals, you know, you should really watch out because we're going to have a whole exotic zoo on stage. (laughs) The first three rows of the auditorium are the splash zone. And I passed out ponchos. They didn't know what they were getting into. And so I prepped it so that people thought that the joking part was perhaps over. And then as Uh I turned to go back to my seat, I trip over the conductor podium and drop my violin, which, you know, is already in pieces. So it falls. And I hadn't thought about really how to get out of it. And nor had I told the rest of the orchestra I was going to do this. Huge mistake. Oh, no. So there was the loudest gasp you've ever heard from the audience. I froze at this point because I was like, oh my gosh. The rest of the orchestra was utterly horrified. I had not thought about how they would react. (laughs) I don't know why, but the assistant principal cellist, he stood up and shouted an expletive very loudly. Oh no! like oh no oh no you know it was the most awkward thing ever then because then I picked up the pieces and I think I just sort of said like April Fools this isn't my real violin Uh, I'm gonna go get that now and we'll resume the concert (laughs) and everyone was I mean they were they sort of like then broke a little bit and started laughing but everyone was just in shock it was (laughs) yeah (laughs) that was like too serious as well so then you know I played the concert and I was a little bit sheepish but I was like well you know what I went for it and then I only did it for one other night because by April 3rd you're like the joke has passed yeah but I did do it again the following night and figured out a way to exit the prank more gracefully and it was much more (laughs) successful and funny and I still hear people talk about that to this day I meet like audience members that are like oh you were the one that did the April Fool's Day thing that was hilarious oh my gosh we were terrified (laughs) It's really, it's funny that it has is, it is persisted, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly proud of it because I, I was young, you know, it was my first yeah. job and I think I was just like, you know, I'm going to go for this and be silly because I, I am a silly person, Yeah, but it was definitely a risk. So yeah. I think <laughs> critically about if you're wanting to do a similar prank in yeah. professional life. But yes. wow, what a story. Thanks for sharing. My God. I mean... <laughs> Like, I don't know how else you could prank an entire orchestra and an audience. And also what the cellist just like screaming. <laughs> yeah, it was intense. And it was it was actually very, yeah, I, I did feel bad. I was so apologetic. I was like, guys, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I didn't warn you that this was going to happen. And because they they knew that I played on an expensive, uh, you know, old yeah. instrument. And they didn't know that it wasn't that. And, and I... <laughs> I would have been just as upset as they were if I knew, you know, someone's instrument. It was, yeah, it was funny. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, Sam, are you ready for some Spitfire questions? I'm ready. I'm so excited. (laughs) Mahler or Bruckner? Mahler. Debussy or Ravel? Ravel. That one's tough. (laughs) Yeah. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Appetizer or dessert? Ooh, that is tough. Dessert. Sparkling or still water? Sparkling for sure. So this is the fan favorite question. Alternate universe musical instrument. Trumpet. Oh, yeah. I guess it's like the violin of the brass, I suppose, right? Maybe, but it's it's terrible because like, you know, trumpet players have such a reputation. I don't <laughs> think I would really be that. I just, I always like, if I thought I was going to play a brass instrument, I always wanted to play trumpet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Early bird or night owl? Night owl. Pandemic guilty pleasure 
Oh, that's tough. Um, guilty pl- pandemic, guilty pleasure. I think that would be probably just having an excuse not to do anything. <laughs> oh, I feel like there's that's a lot to unpack because it's like this idea that we have to be productive at all times, which is a very musician-y way of thinking. But then is it guilty to, sorry, <laughs> sorry to start analyzing that. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's something that maybe I can like destigmatize about things is that like not saying anything wrong with what you just said, but I'm just like, there is this no, notion. The same way. Yeah, but like you don't need a reason to not be productive or you don't need to feel guilty to just sit and not do anything. Right. And yet initially, certainly I did. I was like, oh my gosh, well, I should be. Yeah, right. Very uncomfortable. It was very weird not to be embarking on whatever project we were supposed to be doing, especially since it was like the busiest time of year I yeah. think, when everything shut down. Right. So yeah, it definitely was a guilt. I was like, well, I'm going to sleep in and watch a bunch of Netflix shows. I guess that's okay. Yeah. Favorite professor shout out? Peter Rowe, who taught all of these Music of India classes at NEC where I went to college. He was amazing and an amazing sitar player. Oh, wow. Just total cool mind. And he actually has since passed away, which is really sad. But um, I took every one of his classes I could and it was amazing. Nice. Rest in peace. Yes. Most inspired musical hero of any genre? Rufus Wainwright. Oh. There's one album in particular of his, Release the Stars, that is just brilliant in every way. Just the kind of orchestration that he uses for his songs. And I've listened to it, I don't know how many times now, and it's just gotten me through so many things, you know, from training for a half marathon to packing up our whole house. It's just amazing. Like every time I listen to that album, there's something new that I hear in it. Yeah. And hearing the genius of how it was all crafted. It's really good. Yeah. Awesome. Most transformative performance experience? Probably playing this Rautavara movement that I premiered at Tanglewood that was like a new version of a movement of this piano and violin work for string orchestra. And I really pushed myself. It was the first time that I, since college, I did something from memory, which usually I, I had gotten away from and made me really uncomfortable. But I, I really internalized that music. It was a short piece, but really beautiful and amazing. And I felt like I remember feeling sort of a turning point in how I felt in control of it in the moment. And I think that was the beginning of how I tried to play from then on and really capture like a different level of intimate knowledge of the music that I'm playing. Yeah. That sort of stemmed from that moment, I think. And it was also for me, I think a turning point in being how I viewed myself as being a student versus a professional. So that was really helpful to me, you know, going forward. So that was really meaningful. And it was just an amazing experience to get to do at Tanglewood with great colleagues. I mean, my God, of course. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that really resonates with me. It's like that performance for you unlocked that level of inner confidence of, you know, what you're doing, even without the music. Yeah. And that you were able to then with this inner confidence of saying, hey, I know how to play the violin. I'm not worried about the little ins and outs. I can now take it to a next level of expression and interpretation. That is you. That's exactly right. I think it was also like the first time I really felt genuinely like proud of myself for what I had done. And that was, you know, it's, it's tough when we're always taught to like self-analyze and be critical. And yes, you know, that I didn't, there's something about that night. I was like, I understand how I can, yes, I can do those things, but I can also feel like that was recognized objectively. Like that was an accomplishment to be proud of. And I feel good about what I was able to offer. That was helpful and definitely like a growth moment. No, totally. No, that's awesome. Desert island piece of any genre? Ooh, another really good one. 
I mean, again, I'd have to say like Desert Album Island would be that Rufus Rainwright album. Sure. But I already used that. So I won't yeah. say that again. I yeah, okay. will say. <laughs> this would be your second piece then. See, maybe Appalachian Spring. Oh, the chamber version or the orchestral version? I think the orchestral version. How many people on your island are there? <laughs> <laughs> it's a large island. Okay. <laughs> you got buddies. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Why that piece? To me, that piece like exists sort of outside of the world a little bit. I'm not sure why. Mm. Just something about what it reminds me of and like reminds me of travel and just this idea of there being like an ideal America, maybe. Mm. Even though it wasn't necessarily that way, but it, it like feels like aspirational. Like I can still feel like the hope in those sounds. Yeah, I've just always thought it was kind of this eternal piece. It seems like to me when I hear it, it exists outside of the context of the world almost that's a beautiful way of painting that piece wow but that's so right I mean I think that's where a lot of Copeland's sound is very open and chordal right so like the way he stacks harmonies are very open and that's where you can get that depth and sense of your place wow you got great answers okay oh good That concludes the Spitfire questions. Congratulations, you made it. Yay, thank you. (laughs) So Sam, can you tell me your musical origin story? Walk me through when you first discovered a violin and tell us at the point of when you decided, hey, this is something I want to do professionally and then walk us through all that education and steps until where you are today. Sure. Really, my first memory of seeing the violin and seeing kids play it was actually at a parade that was put on by the college in the town that I grew up in Ames, Iowa, actually. Mm. And And they had this spring parade every year that was like all of the different colleges of the university doing their part. And I don't really know in hindsight why there was, it was also community organizations could participate. And so one of the organizations was the Suzuki Association of Ames. And they had like a hayride float that was just filled with all these kids playing like fiddle tunes and other presumably Suzuki pieces. And I apparently, and I'm sort of now repeating what my parents have told me because I was pretty little. I think it was like five, you know, was very interested in that and was like, oh, can I play? I want to learn the violin. And they sort of brushed it off for a little bit of time, but I was apparently persistent enough that they thought, well, maybe we should take her to like observe a lesson and see Mm. what that's like. And my mom's friend, her son was taking lessons and we like went to see a lesson of his and, you know, talked to the teacher and seemed like, oh, yeah, let's give this a shot. And then my friend who was the sister of the kid's lesson who we observed, we actually like started at the same time and mm-hmm. so it was a fun thing because it was also my friends were doing it and yeah I just started with Suzuki you know worked my way up through that system in Ames we had a really awesome little group of students and teachers it was such I'm really lucky that at that time that organization existed I think it's kind of faltered a bit now as I've oh. heard about it but in my mind this like shining period of time where all of these things were happening and I really got to take advantage of them growing up there was an amazing place to grow up just like filled with arts and culture there was a great orchestra at the college that brought in all of these orchestras that came through touring you know New York Phil Vienna Boston all of these groups like came to Iowa and played at a concert and we like went to all of them and I saw at that time it was like Nigel Kennedy and Nadia Salerno Sonnenberg oh my god yeah Josh Bell and it was just so cool so I studied Suzuki and at a certain point you know then I left that curriculum started going to some summer festivals like as a pretty young kid I went to Indiana University Summer String Academy oh, for two years 
yeah. which was awesome. It was like just the best time. And eventually I found my way to studying with the Vamuses in Chicago. So Roland and Almeida Vamus were amazing. And they were the ones that if not for them, I wouldn't be a professional violinist. So I lived in Chicago for the last three years of high school. And, okay. you know, for me, I think the transition into going into music for college just kind of like happened without mm. a lot of thought in terms of I wasn't like, okay, this is what I'm doing. It was just the path that I was on. And you just kind of flowed down the river with what you were doing. You know, I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to do this. It was like, I'm doing this thing. And then that leads to this thing. And then, oh, yeah, it's a good idea to do this. And then suddenly here I am applying for like conservatories. And I did apply for universities as well. So at that point, I did have to like finally sort of think about it because I've always loved academics. I loved school. I a huge reader and I love math and sciences as well. So I was a little torn about if I went to a conservatory, I, I am sort of sealing my fate, so to speak. Like I'm not going to do, I, and we now know, obviously that's not true. Like at any point you could go back and become some other profession. Yeah. But at the time it felt like, oh, okay, I was actually very close to going to Indiana University. It was between Indiana University and NEC, New England right. Conservatory. And in the end, it just, it was like, you know, music kind of won out and it was like, I have to see where this goes. And it was definitely the right decision yeah. in Boston and studying with Mr. Wallerstein. Yeah. I can't imagine how it would have been now any other way. So can I just quickly clarify, because maybe some of my listeners might not know who Don Wallerstein is, but he is a huge violin and chamber music pedagogue, teaches at Juilliard and New England Conservatory. He was the first violinist of the Cleveland String Quartet in its original form, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I feel like any chamber musician who ever had the opportunity to work with him has, I mean, I still remember a lot of things that he told me, even in just like a few coachings, you know, it's just there's, he has a following, at least I should dare say. (laughs) Exactly. He's a total guru, I think at this point is a a good way of describing. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to, I went to NEC for my undergrad, had an amazing experience there. Then I, I actually stayed at NEC for grad school and got my master's there as well and I felt like you know in my senior year of NEC I felt like I sort of not wasted my first two years but certainly it was a period of adjustment where I didn't get the most out of my experience there as I could have so Mm -hmm. that's what led me to wanting to stay there to keep studying with Mr. Weilerstein but I also in turn wanted to have more orchestral experience because I knew I you know wanted to be an orchestral musician so C again was so amazing in their ability to like tailor the education to every individual student. So I, I did a split studio. So half my lessons were with Mr. Weilerstein and then half of them were with Malcolm Lowe, who was mm-hmm. at the time the concertmaster of the Boston Symphony. So that was really wonderful because I think, you know, coming from the Vamuses who were a very directing presence, it was like, do whatever they tell you. They really sculpted your education with them. And like, they were so invested with time and yeah, just, it was very like all encompassing. And then Mr. Weilerstein's approach, and also just because like he's teaching college age students I think I didn't shift how I like needed to learn from a teacher yet so I was like I felt like a little formless when it was just up to me you know we talked so much about abstract concepts and about how we're using our body and like not so much on like the nitty-gritty like technique Mm -hmm. that I still I think I needed to be able to be like really focused so that's what I mean when I say I felt like I didn't get everything out of it those first years it was just and also just an adjustment I think of like going to college and and all of those 
those new things. And so then I started to really find my way in that and was like, I can't let this go. And that's why I wanted to stay there and keep studying with Mr. Wallerstein and then add this other element into it. And I think in the end, I recall the things that we talked about every day, pretty much, mm-hmm. you know, in my life now. So mm-hmm. it's, it was definitely the right decision. But I think it was interesting to have to self-examine to like, how do I actually l- learn from the things that the teachers say? Yeah. And the different ways that they try to educate you. It was interesting. Well, and also, how do you reckon with what you've been taught in the past as well, right? And how do you put those puzzle pieces together? That's where I, I have similar experiences where I felt like maybe I didn't absorb as much as I wished within a first year of something. Yeah, because yes. it was like, wait, but this person told me this, but then this person said this, but what do I feel? And yeah, it's just a lot of that juggling around, I think. Right. I think I think that's true. And now I'm starting to see, I think maybe because I'm getting old, but I'm starting <laughs> to see what people say about like, I didn't know who I was then. So of course, yeah. like, how could I, in terms of as a musician yet? Like I was still building that. And I mean, obviously I'm still building that now, but now many years on from college, I only now literally this year feel like I'm like, oh, I'm, I know what they all mean now. And I'm actually able to do these things and incorporate them in ways that like are successful now. And it's wild how I feel like those six years of of education, they're still all in there Mm -hmm. and like they're coming out at different times. And I'm like still drawing on that stuff. Yeah. Just, it's actually really crazy. I feel like now I have the time to practice in a way that allows me to actually do everything that they're yes. they teaching. And that's changed even more specifically because of this pandemic, you know, mm-hmm. not overplaying also. Just, mm-hmm. It's so it's been so interesting to realize how things change when you're not just playing like six hours of orchestra every day yeah. and then doing other stuff on top of it. It's like, oh, actually, maybe I only do need to play for two hours. But if I'm like utterly focused and very discerning about it, it feels like I've worked for a week on this stuff and it's, yeah. it's interesting. So I'm still really grateful for the education that I got because I'm 100% drawing on every day that I'm in the practice room or, you know, just thinking about things. I Yeah, I. it's hard to describe the demanding nature of a conservatory or music school lifestyle, like a very, like one where you're trying to make it to the best orchestras or whatever. I mean, they throw so much at you all at once and sometimes learning doesn't doesn't happen instantly. And so exactly it It doesn't happen instantly all the time. Yeah. And so I think the best teachers are the ones that are the most patient with their students in this way. But also sometimes as a student, it feels like, why am I not doing this thing that my teacher said right now? And that gets into the psyche of like, am I good enough? Do I deserve to like all those things start to pile on top, right? In retrospect, it's like, oh, like everything's gonna come together like in an oven, you know, it's yeah, that is definitely like the best analogy for it. It really is like you can put all the ingredients in a pot or something, but like literally without time, they're never going to become this greater thing, this yeah. sum of whatever it is that you're trying to go for. And and it's so funny. I feel like human nature wants to fight that. We yeah. just want everything now. And the biggest thing that I've been able to really understand and, you know, let go of is releasing into that, you know, this thing is going to take time. And it's not even something that I need to like think about like throughout that time. It's just literally I've got to sit with this. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you, because you said there was a point where you knew you wanted to go into orchestra, but when was that point? 
pretty early on in undergrad, I came to the realization, well, two things really. And I loved orchestra repertoire and I wanted to be a leader. And mm-hmm. you know, ideally, and I'm still working towards that. Like I would love to be concertmaster in orchestra. One. Oh, sure. So maybe three things, actually. I wanted to be in an orchestra. I loved that repertoire. I wanted to be a leader. And then I also loved contemporary music. So mm-hmm. those three things, like NEC immediately kind of showed me the whole wide range of what the possibilities were. And those three things were pretty soon after I got there, like, okay, this is what I'm drawn to. And I think maybe I would have come to that realization sooner, but in terms of my pre-college education, it was really string-centric and chamber music, which I also love. And I didn't play in a big youth orchestra like a lot of people do. So I played in like a string orchestra with Roland Ramos. And so I didn't have that firsthand experience. And I think also for me, it's not like violin in particular is my like favorite instrument of all time. It's just the one that I play and I happen to be good at playing. But a lot of people like have the opposite experience. They're like very much like violinist, violinist. And I, for me, I feel like I'm a musician that like mm-hmm. my outlet is violin. Yeah. Yes. Um, so orchestra allows you to feel like you're speaking with all of the different color palettes. Like oh, cool. It's really this like composite. And so I want the power of having like a whole section behind me because on yeah. its own, you know, a brass section can blow violin out of the water. But yeah. If you have the whole section behind you or like you're part of the whole section, it's like this huge, like cosmic beast of a thing that's this big sound. And I was just always so drawn to that. And I love being in the middle of it. I love being in the middle of all the action and just being one part of the larger picture. And it's interesting, I think the pandemic has like refocused me a little bit on visual identity as a violinist because it's been me in a practice room and I've come to like really appreciate that in a way that I don't think I did before. Mm-hmm. And just also to appreciate, you know, with the ensemble, solo projects like solo contemporary music, especially. Mm-hmm. So that's been interesting and exciting for me to discover like exactly the opposite of what initially like what got me into this and I'm learning to like really appreciate all aspects of what I do I think in a much more holistic way and then in terms of contemporary music it was just the you know the conservatory setting where your classmates were composition majors you're playing the composition students things and workshopping them and that was always just super exciting to me and interesting and sometimes I am surprised because being interested in new things seems like well why wouldn't everybody always want something new like it seems like a part of human nature right like a new thing like innovation fight against the opposite so much with contemporary music people are like well I don't you know new is scary or new is I I don't know so that it's not a guarantee that they're going to have an emotion that's of pleasure and enjoyment whereas you know they can fall on the laurels of Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms right where it's like I know I'm going to enjoy this as a guarantee right well see and that's the whole thing that we've tried to get away from the expectation that you have to enjoy it (laughs) yes I love this yeah please go on (laughs) and I think contemporary music in general it's the worst brunt of it because nobody really says that as much as they do about music as they do like art. Like if you don't like a piece of modern art, you just walk away from it in the gallery, right? Yeah. It's not the case when you're in a concert. So you, there is an element of like, you do have to finish listening to the piece. But I'm always interested in not just like, I don't want to just feel passively happy about something. Like I want there to be something more to that. Sometimes it's yeah. like much more gratifying to feel like confused and intrigued or not angry but like well, what was that that was disturbing like, yeah this disturbs me and it dis- it is disrupting something and maybe that's important and maybe I need to think about that and address that and understand well why is it that I feel this way about something and so I feel like the assumption that all music all time should be just pure enjoyment
employment, I think is craft, number one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it really holds us back as an art form in, in terms of getting the most out of it. I think this is sort of an old idea almost at this point now. And I do think we've moved past that a lot, but it's still something that I think about when I'm playing contemporary music and something yeah. that we do talk about with our audience members. And in Sarasota, we I feel really lucky because a lot of people are, are willing to kind of take the risk with us. And they're comfortable saying like, that piece was like, made me feel really uncomfortable for mm-hmm. large sections of that. You know, it was, it was disconcerting harmony. And like, but then when it resolved, it was like this transformative thing. And it was like, yeah, okay. Like those are things that real life isn't just passive. Right. We should have musical and artistic experiences that reflect all aspects. And yeah, of course, we look to these experiences to get us out of our, our normal life. But I think by like reflecting it, we can, we can get past that and we can like learn something greater or have like a more outside view of what we're experiencing. It's so great. I love everything you were just saying. And I absolutely agree 100% with it. I guess that's a long winded way of saying that I did my bachelor and master's conservatory. Yes, no, I'll, I'll get us back. So I finished my master's and George, my husband, he had just two years previously, we're two years apart in school, and he had won a position as principal percussion in Sarasota Orchestra in Florida when I was just starting my master's. And so when I graduated, I moved down to Sarasota and freelanced for a year, and like subbed with Sarasota for 10 weeks, which was great, and traveled around and subbed with different orchestras. Then there was an opening in the Florida Orchestra. So I took that and I won that audition then Sarasota had an opening for Principal Second. So I took that and that's where I've been now ever since. And it's been awesome. So when George and I were both in Sarasota, we, you know, having come there basically directly from school, we did find it kind of a stark contrast in terms of just like, especially contemporary music, not necessarily having the same experiences, especially coming from Tanglewood too, where it's such a big part of our summers. And for both of us, for percussion, especially because George is a percussionist, you know, most of their chamber music is of course new music so it's Mm -hmm. not even weird to them it's just that's the music that's their yeah yeah (laughs) so but both of us have always loved contemporary music and working with living composers and you know being part of that creative process so we wanted to keep doing that and we felt like we needed to keep doing that and we started doing a couple concerts of violin and percussion duo rep and so we did these concerts six or seven years ago now and there was an appetite in the community for more of them they're like okay well when's the next one and it was at that point that we decided well maybe we should really form something concrete form an ensemble so yeah we just took the plunge registering reading as a 501c3 and just kind of took off from there our first full season which was i think four or five concerts and that was five years ago this is the end of our fifth season wow congratulations thanks it's been amazing it's been a crazy amount of work <laughs> yeah no kidding i mean can you tell me about your current projects with that group or with chroma or with sarasota sure so yeah, upcoming things for the ensemble, we're kind of in a holding pattern. We don't do too much in terms of like live performances over the summer, but we are super excited about next season, which will be our sixth season for the ensemble. We've got several commissions in the works. We are partnering with Ensemble Vim, which is an ensemble based in Atlanta, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to bring a new commission from Elizabeth A. Baker, which is going to be like a 60 to 90 minute work for both ensembles that's utilizing 
video projections and actually our scores will be like a video score that we're reading from all individually and then there's a composite element to this so both ensembles will perform their sort of individual parts and then it comes together to be like a larger composite work very cool really excited about that we also finally after two years of getting postponements because of covid we'll be performing one of our commissions from this past season from max grafe called shadow theater Mm. We're really excited about that. And then with Chroma, we will be premiering Tyson J. Davis's new work for String Trio. It's going to be amazing. And I can't wait to play with Mary and Francesca again. Yeah. <laughs> Sarasota Orchestra is actually planning at this point still a, basically a normal, I'm saying this with air quotes, a normal season, like more standard repertoire. We're going to have our winds and brass back, which will be really nice after all last year, just doing string rep and small chamber music work. It should be nice just to play some big orchestra pieces. Yeah. Are any of those concerts, specifically the Chroma Trio and also the Ensemble New SRQ, are those going to be virtual options? Yes. Are there virtual All of the five programs next Next year for the ensemble season will also be live streamed and they will remain up on the website as well for a period of time after that so you can cool. register for access and see those programs as well it's ten dollars for the streaming well awesome are you ready to take a break sam yes let's do that okay we'll be right back Welcome back from the break. So a camper traveling around the North and Southwest United States. How did you get that idea? Yes, this has really become a huge part of our life now, which is wild to think about that basically a year ago, we didn't have any of this going and we didn't have any of our trips under our belt or anything. So basically what has happened is that, you know, when the pandemic started and everything shut down, it was really like the busiest time of the year for George and I. And we had all this sort of pen up energy because we were about to like go into some of our most difficult programs for all the groups that we play with and had a lot of things that were supposed to happen. And for a little bit, we did take some just time, you know, to adjust and chill and relax and kind of catch up on things. But then we realized that we could make the most of this time. And we had some friends staying with us, actually, Micah and Kyle, who actually maybe, you know, Patty, peripherally from Tanglewood. Micah Ringham was a violinist with me. She was a from player before I was. Oh, Micah. Uh, yes. Yeah. And they had actually come down to Florida right when things got really bad in Boston because initially things were bad in the Northeast and not mm -hmm. Florida was okay. And they ended up staying with us for the next almost four months because, oh, wow. you know, things got worse and we didn't want to travel and I was actually in the process of figuring out how to move all of my belongings from Sarasota to Dallas and I guess I should preface this by saying that George plays now in the Dallas Symphony as principal percussionist so I'm sort of splitting my time still between Sarasota and Dallas and we still have our house in Sarasota but I wanted to move a lot of my like personal belongings and other things to Dallas and we thought well better time to do it actually not at the end of this summer after we were exhausted from festivals because there aren't any music festivals happening but yeah. we now it was like june at this point and we thought okay well we could actually you know not do this in a crazy way and actually take some time to like pack up so really the camper i know this seems unrelated but the camper came about because we thought how are we going to get from florida to texas without flying well, yes we van we could just put a mattress in the back of the van and stay in the middle of mississippi you know sleep at a rest stop 
And we were like, okay, well, that'll be fine. One, one of us will drive the moving truck and, and then one of us will just sleep in the van. And then thanks also to our inspiration of having two of our best friends there with us, they were like, well, wait a second, maybe we could actually make more of this. So <laughs> what ended up transpiring was a complete overhaul conversion of this 2003 Chevy Astrovan. It's teal. It's an awesome color. <laughs> We've had it for like seven years, I think, and it was very helpful for moving percussion equipment and other oh, yeah. concert stuff over the course of our lives. And we just, we were like, let's go for it. Let's convert this thing fully. We stripped it down. And when I say we really, it was George and Kyle. <laughs> I, I will take peripheral credit for, sure. <laughs> for being a supportive part of this transformation. And I did, we did help out with a bunch of these projects, but we took everything out of it, the flooring, like, so it was basically just the metal shell of the vehicle. We have a solar panel on the roof that oh, wow. provides all of our power we which goes to a power inverter and a battery that stores that energy the power inverter allows us to plug regular devices into it so we can charge our phones and laptops and other things from the solar battery but also we have a number of now a year into it we've made some adjustments to what we had first and the biggest and best one was that we have hardwired into the solar battery a fridge in the van so we now don't have to rely on our cooler only so we have an actual fridge oh my god God. Are you familiar with the old TV show? I think it was on MTV called Pimp My Ride. Yes. That's like what you did to this thing. That's awesome. But please keep it. Except it doesn't look super cool. It's like very utilitarian. But the um, bells and whistles are inside. Is That's true. So George then installed, like, we have we actually have, like, recessed LEDs in the ceiling that are, like, dimmable. So when we're in there at night, you can have, like, lights. And there's a water tank and with a water pump that's hardwired. So you can, like, you know, if you're in the middle of nowhere, you can take a shower with it. Yeah. Yeah. So and there's a platform bed and storage and a kitchen that slides out. There's a drawer underneath the platform bed that opens and has a little camp stove that runs on propane. And anyway, so basically... Basically, it's totally a functioning home situation anywhere off grid that you want it to be. And it's been amazing. I cannot tell you like how it has transformed our lives and really in all ways. We It's just such a good experience to be out there and just have the perspective of like how little power and how few resources we actually need to live and be happy and be like totally content and just travel all around. It's been amazing. Like, yeah. We have not yet exhausted its ability to live off grid fully. Like on the various trips that we then took over the course of the summer, one of them was for five weeks, just driving west from Dallas all the way to California, up the coast of California and Oregon and Washington state, and then back east through Glacier National Park and down again through Wyoming and Colorado. You know, at times we were really out there for like five, six days without coming back into town to get more water or anything. And it's totally doable. I mean, we never, it's amazing. We never ran lower than 70% of our solar power. Wow, really? Yeah, it's just, it's been so amazing to be able to have that experience. And I never really camped as a kid. And uh-huh. it's always something that I wanted to do. And I really love being outside. So that was really amazing for me. I felt like I could just totally shift gears and become this like, you know, wilderness person. And so part of that would 
part of that those travels have also involved we've taken our our road bikes which was a really helpful thing in the pandemic to have an outlet to just like you know get outside get on the bike for three hours and just go no masks or that yeah well exactly yeah you just you're kind of out there and and george has been biking for cycling for a couple years and always wanted me to get into it and i sort of i resisted it because i wasn't sure if my body could handle it i like Mm frequently had some shoulder issues like playing wise and I was like nervous about whether that the form on the bike would be problematic so I just didn't go for it but then the pandemic happened and actually it was just before that that I had gotten my first road bike and started to get into it and it was like that couldn't have been better timing because suddenly the pandemic started no one could buy bikes or anything and actually it was really beneficial to my body and helped my shoulder and like get strength and flexibility back and so it's just been amazing and then we just kind of I just jumped into it with him, you know, and so we just started planning these trips where we're alternating, doing really cool hikes one day and, you know, 50, 60 mile rides the next day, all up, up and down the roads in California, which is amazing and out in Arizona, New Mexico, just, it's been so cool. And then, so the bikes, we have a place for them in the van. Mm-hmm. We lock everything up at night, put the curtains up, you know, sleep, get up the next morning, get back out there. It was really awesome. So we're at this point in the year, we're thinking about summer again, we're like, you know, we're not going to have as much time this year, but we're going to do some of that at least. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm jealous. I wish I could. I wish I had my own little like convertible car into a camper situation. And I have to ask though, what is the gas mileage on that car? Uh, it's not great. It's yeah, like, it's like 16 miles. Okay, hour. that's better than I was thinking. So. Yeah. Well, we got, so we, we did get it lifted and we have like all-terrain tires on it now. It's not a four-wheel drive vehicle, but it is rear-wheel drive. So that did take a little bit of the mileage down, but <laughs> we had to do that in order to get to the campsites that we wanted to get to and stuff. Because basically, so for all of this summer travel, you know, we just used dispersed camping apps, which basically, mm-hmm. so like not, we didn't, we weren't in campsites. And there are some really good apps out there that it's like GPS coordinates and that sometimes the, the sites will have like a little fire ring that someone will have built and um, you're the only one there truly the only one yeah. that's there actually we inspired Micah and Kyle to convert they have a Ford Ranger so they put a cap on that and converted their vehicle into a camper as well <laughs> and late in July of last summer we actually ended up meeting them in Colorado as they no way doing their own travels yeah very so cool that was really cool it's a little tricky actually in Texas because there isn't a lot of BLM land. So mm-hmm. that's where, where all of this dispersed camping is allowed. Uh, in Texas, it's like mostly private landowners and ranchers. Mm-hmm. But there's another, of course, there's another app for that, which is called Tenter. And you can basically like Airbnb, like sites on private land. I see. Um, do the same thing. So you're just out there by yourself in the wilderness. And so over Christmas, we took the van down to Big Bend National Park. Oh, cool. And did some more camping and riding there. It was it was super cool. Yeah. I don't want to continue to focus necessarily on your car, even though I have so many other questions to ask. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, obviously, that's just literally the vehicle that gets you to these places, right? So my question is, I mean, it's like, how do you choose? But out of all the national parks that you visited, which was maybe say the top three that you would, yeah, were your favorites? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah, you're right. It's like, 
almost impossible because they're so different. That's what's so amazing. Yes. Yeah. Everything is so different. Well, I think Olympic National Park was amazing. Yes. That was incredible. Like the coast that far north is wild. And then, yeah, yeah, the inland part of it is just so beautiful and like definitely something totally new in terms of landscape. So that was amazing. We had an unbelievable campsite in literally the middle of the Redwoods, Mm -hmm. California. And that was incredible because it, we literally were like right next to a tree that was way bigger than the entirety of our van. Big Bend was also a complete surprise and was truly amazing. I did not know that, you know, it snowed in the mountains. Well, I didn't know, I didn't know that Texas like had mountains and really it's right on the Mexican border. So it's like very far south, but there was snow, you know, when we were there and we were biking. And as we got up to like the top of this mountain, it was like totally snowy and wild because it were cacti, you know, yeah. cacti and all kinds of like other succulents that were like covered in the snow. And it was amazing. Big Bend, if you haven't been, is, is pretty incredible. And it's so remote that it was very private. There weren't a lot of people there because it's, it's quite far south. So I was going to say, actually, what's so great about you with your camper, but also finding these BLM lands is that you're actually more private, right? You're able yeah. to literally sit in a redwood forest by yourself or yourselves, I should say, and have no one around and be immersed in nature like that. Right. Well, and that was the big thing, like in the pandemic last summer, you know, and if we were just sort of to say without explanation that we were like traveling around, people were like, well, what? You you can't travel. And it's like, well, no, you don't understand. Like we're really we're, like the only times that we see another human are when we have to fill up with gas. Mm-hmm. And other than that, we do not see anybody else. And mm-hmm. so it was like a way for us to feel like the most safe because at the time we were living in an apartment in Dallas. So we had to interact with people and many, most of them at that time were like not wearing masks and being mm-hmm. in elevators or just being in the hallway. And, and you're like in this compact, like urban situation. And it felt like all we wanted to do was like get out of there. Yeah. So you're right. It was the best way of doing it. And you're just totally immersed in nature. And it was actually a little bit strange, though, sometimes to kind of come back into like the real world and be like, oh, wait, things are really bad. Yeah. So there was a lot of news that happened over the summer that that we, you've missed that well yeah or that we you know we would come back into like radio range or something and turn on and be something you know just horrible like that's how we found out about the whole George Floyd situation we were like oh my gosh it was like after three days of not clocking into current events at all and then it was just scary to like come back into things and to just hear about what's happening over the country and so then that made us really think like okay well it's not a solution to just shut things off or like mm-hmm. to be, remove yourself we have to be better and like try to make a better world it was definitely a wild time but it was incredibly educational like the whole experience I think what I'm gathering from what you're saying about how much you tapped into the news and plugged or unplugged right is you were really experiencing a huge scope of humanity all at once you're doing the whole isolation you're just in your own bubble world out in nature no one's around to like tell you anything that's going on and then you can plug in and then see like what's civilization's doing, which is oftentimes not so pretty, right? And so I can't imagine what that tapping in and out of like the serene world and then back into the events that happened this past summer and some of the tragedies that we experienced together and just that's weird. Yeah, (laughs) It, it, it was it was. 
is there anything that you discovered from that experience or just maybe not even specifically what I'm talking about, but the entirety of your travels? I mean, I think you mentioned how little you need, like that the amount of things that are actually necessities versus Right. Yeah, that certainly was the one part of it. And I think we learned so much about ourselves, but also about like humanity, it seems to be as well. Like, yeah. So first thing was, you know, I was happy to know that I could very easily adjust to living our lives with almost nothing, just what was in the van and using very little resource. It's amazing how adaptable we are, right? As humans, we just don't even try to adapt or like try to find a better situation because we're so, we're incredibly adaptable, but we're also so filled with inertia, I feel like. So unless you really do something that like puts you out of whatever you are doing, it feels like this monumental task to break a routine. But Mm. then what I found is that once the routine is broken, the the new thing so quickly becomes the new routine. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so I feel like the biggest thing I learned is that it's not the situation that I'm in. That's like the constant. It's like for me to know that whatever the situation is that I'm in, I can make it the constant. Mm hmm. That's what's solid. And it's like how I adapt to the situation and the situations aren't always going to be the same, but I now know more so that I can make anything work, so to speak. Yeah. In the broadest, in the most general terms. And I mean, that's just empowerment, right? I mean, that sounds, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And that was, I've always struggled with change and I've always struggled with, you know, anxiety over change and not having that control and to really feel like, well, wait a second, the control comes from within and like, I feel so much more confident in my ability to make the most of whatever. Yeah. Just to feel like, okay, I'm not at the mercy of good luck or bad luck. Mm -hmm. This thing that happened. No, I can, whatever it is, like I can make a great life for myself doing X, Y, and Z. And that was also helpful because at that, this was all at a point in time where we didn't know if the music world was going to come back in any way that would allow for us to make a living doing what we were doing. So that was also interesting for me to like decouple my identity as being a violinist, a professional violinist. And that's like who I am to like, okay, if if I can't ever do that again, I can figure out a way to exist and be inspired and like do other things. And that was really helpful. So that internally, I think, you know, George and I both grew a lot through <laughs> the course of those travels. And yeah, just trusting ourselves. Also, just there's something about like being in the middle of nowhere and just trusting yourself to survive. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And I think it was a kind of empowerment. And then I I feel like those moments where we tapped in and out of the world that was happening, and then the total vast wilderness that is the West, it did allow us to a little bit see, I think, from like an outside perspective of how unnecessary many of these conflicts are. And it, it just felt like, well, if how can we all gain more of a sense of this universal I mean it's it's cliche but it's true like when you are looking at the sky or you're out in nature and there's Mm -hmm. nothing around you except mountains you can't escape it you can't escape feeling like your place in the universe is put into perspective in a way that when we're in our normal routines of our daily life you just lose sight of yeah and so it was just another reminder for us all to realize listen we're just we're all humans on this one planet and we have to figure out a way a better way of coexisting and just it was almost even more upsetting than we would tap into things and like or just see things that are from little things to big things you know then you go into a gas station and like somebody wasn't wearing a mask and you're just like well why 
Mm-hmm. How do we get here? How do we get to a place where like nobody trusts science and all of that? So that was also just helpful to be able to remember that <laughs> when things kind of go back to where they are now, like to remember that feeling and to try to incorporate changes into what we're doing to better the situation, you know, just mm-hmm. like, and there's certainly so much more that we could be doing, but it's perspective. I think that's literally, as you're even saying, when you're looking at yourself at this giant blue sky with mountains around and sand beneath your feet and identifying with this idea that you're just a little speck of of a being in this huge universe, you know, and also it's like, not only do we have that perspective looking bigger than ourselves, but it's also a perspective of a moment in time as well. Like we, we don't last forever, right? And also nature is not going to last forever either. We have to enjoy where we are in the moment. And especially in a, and you can really identify with those places in all of these national parks or national forests and whatever. And, but I think what's also really great about what you were able to do is remind us listeners that there is a vast wilderness in America. It's not all crazy. Yeah hours and hours and hours and days of driving and you don't come across any you know anything the other thing just in terms of like climate change and sustainability it just seems so silly then all of these systems that we've built up around modern civilization when you're like out there and i mean obviously we couldn't get there without and just you know like okay we're using solar panel and it's going to like that's very like high tech now you know yes but for all intents and purposes you know we're not tapping into global industrialization in that moment or like you're just like, you know, when you're looking at how we're getting food or something or water and you're like, well, how do we get to a place where, you know, like the food that we're eating is coming from around the globe? Like it just makes you realize again, like none of these systems make sense. We shouldn't be living in a world where we have to, We and I think we're all realizing this more and more. And now it's finding a balance between the two, between like being local, living local, buying local products, you know, not <laughs> just food, but also things that we use in our home and doing the opposite like okay what are the resources that are seasonal and exist Mm -hmm. here in this place and that's what we should be using for the greatest amount of sustainability and like you don't need all of this yeah it was just very interesting and crazy to realize like that aspect of it and it's it's something that like I objectively knew and you know believed but to actually like experience that yeah you know it's very alluring in some ways it's like well maybe we should just do that and I've always for the past four or five years in Sarasota in our house there we have vegetable gardens that we grow like Mm -hmm. a lot of our own produce and we just finished getting soil ready for the first gardens that we're doing here in Dallas now again so Mm -hmm. that's been really gratifying to just at least have there are period there were periods of time in Sarasota where you know we we didn't buy products at a grocery store for prior winter and that was awesome so yeah no I mean that's it's all ties in back into the sustainability factor of what you're saying and yeah and for me like mental health wise like I am so much better if I can just have time outside you know there are better and worse things to do with that but literally but that's what it really comes down to mm-hmm. even even if I'm like feeling a little bit like anxious or like tight in the house and then I'm like oh I guess I've been in the house like all day whereas before I would have been like oh well whatever now I'm like forcing myself even if I don't feel like going outside I'll be like no just go sit on the porch for like a little even if you're still on your phone when you're out there yeah and it does help it does make things better I don't know yeah why that is but it does it makes things better yeah Do you have any final thoughts or can I ask you two final questions? No, let's do the final. Okay. What is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self about entering and pursuing a music career? 
I would tell my younger self to be more present when was practicing. You know, quality is so much more important than quantity. I think I had that backwards for a long time. My own practicing was very ineffective for a long time. And I think <laughs> if I could go back and just give myself that piece of advice, like, you know, it's not, and it's hard to do because you think you're supposed to be practicing as much as possible or like do this, it's not going to be better. But yeah. really, if you don't feel like practicing right now and if you're going to practice, but you're not going to be thoughtful about it, there's really no point. You might as well do something else, come back to it when you're ready to spend 30 minutes really listening to what you're doing mm-hmm. and analyzing that and improving that. So I think that would be definitely something that and I would have benefited from. <laughs> I think what also makes it really challenging, I guess, to really understand that as a, a younger version of yourself is that you walk down the practice hall and you see everyone practicing and you get this instinct of like, if I'm not practicing, someone else is and they're going to win the job faster than me. Like they, there's this psychological, which doesn't make sense. Like that's just not how it works. But I remember often I, I had a friend say that to me once and that like stuck. And the other thing is like, don't waste your time if you're spinning your wheels in a practice room when, right. where you could actually literally go outside and get inspiration elsewhere. Like not all yeah. learning happens in a practice room. Yeah. Right. And it is tough because like at that point, you're, we're like technically not quite where we are now. So there is like a balance. Well, okay, you do need to do like some like technical drills. And that's sure. different than like not doing necessarily that the same way. But by and large, I still think it would have much improved those things that I, I know what I know now. Yeah. And my second question, as we enter a post-pandemic world, what elements of your musical pandemic life would you want to continue and what would you want to shed? Mm, I think it kind of ties into the first question, actually, for me. Like, I really, I feel like I finally figured out how to practice the most effectively for me and then the importance of not, like, overplaying. And I know I won't have the opportunity to necessarily keep doing this for good reasons. I, I will be much busier again. But... But it, there's definitely a max like number of hours that playing is going to get you anywhere in the in the day. So like if, if it's a day where I'm going to have six hours of orchestra rehearsal and I have another project to prepare for, I might have to just like know that I have the ability to play this stuff, just only devote like a half hour to really practicing mm-hmm. some of the tricky things and just being okay with like resting my hands and body and being like, it's going to be fine. I'm not going to forget how to play the violin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just having more of that balance Again, like even in life, quantity is not better than quality. We don't need to do everything all the time. It's okay. And actually, if we don't do everything all the time, we can do a few things so much better. Yes. And that's ultimately way more gratifying because you can never do everything. Right. Wow. That's really good advice. Thank you. Well, I I'm hope to remember it for myself. <laughs> Already, you know, I'm feeling like, okay, well, we've got all these projects. It's going to be stressful. And it's like, well, no, wait a second. Yeah, yeah. Let's not get back into that. Right. So Sam, are there any platforms or websites for listeners to learn more about you or any upcoming projects? Yes. So I think the the main one would be the website for the ensemble, which is ensrq.org. And you can find out about our next season, our 21-22 season there. And there's past concerts there. I can direct you to our YouTube page as well. And yeah, check it out. We're doing a lot of cool projects. 
Awesome. And if you enjoyed listening, be sure to smash that subscribe button wherever you're tuning in to this podcast. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. It doesn't need to be a long review. Your review will help others search for the podcast because of its crazy algorithms and you'll make Sushi's day and it's free. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family as well. If you want to level up, you can always become part of the Hiding Behind the Music Stand family by donating what you will on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Hayden Music Stand. Our social media handle for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is at Hayden Music Stand. And we'd love to hear from you at our email, Stand at gmail.com. Didn't recognize the piece we discussed during the episode? No worries. There's a Spotify playlist with all the music discussed for your convenience. The link is in the description of each episode. Sam, thank you so much for being here with me today. It is so good to catch up with you. And you've inspired me so much with your story of converting this camper and going out in the wilderness. Like I, I'm just like kicking myself why I didn't do the same thing. And that like, you should create a fleet of yes, traveling band crazy. musicians. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. I'm so impressed with what you built with this podcast. It's super impressive and it's truly my honor to be your guest. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thanks for listening. Say bye, Sushi. (laughs) 